Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20 as we continue our series on Genesis. Temptation comes suddenly upon us. One of the great temptations of life, of course, is to lie. A little boy was asked to define a lie, and he said, A lie is an abomination to the Lord and a very present help in time of trouble. Well, no, it's an abomination to the Lord. And we have the great patriarch, the father of the faithful, Abraham, lying in this section of Scripture. In uh, verse 1 of chapter 20, Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Abraham has been on a spiritual high point in his intercession for Sodom, where he prays and finally persuades God that if there are only ten righteous men in the city of Sodom, that he would spare Sodom. There weren't ten righteous, but nonetheless, it's been a tremendous exercise of spirituality and faith on Abraham's part. But now, we find him lying about his wife, saying, she is my sister. And uh, the result was Abimelech, and that's probably a name like Pharaoh, uh, an office. Abimelech takes Sarah into his own home to be his wife. A very difficult situation for Sarah. And this is taking place right on the brink of the promised fulfillment to Abraham that he would have a son through Sarah. God had just gotten through telling him that this would shortly be fulfilled. And Abraham does this thing. Uh, Your liberal theologian would uh, use a story like this to question the inspiration of Scripture. Because uh, he finds another time earlier in Genesis 12 when Abraham did something similar. And he says, well, this just represents two different accounts of the same story. Same event, and you've got different authors, and somebody wove these uh, all together in a book. But it's, it's not two different situations, it's the same situation. And, and he would say, you can't take the Scriptures as being the Word of God as we have them. No, you find if you look at verse 13 that the, this had happened earlier, because Abraham and Sarah had agreed that whenever... They were in a situation like this. This is what he would say, verse 13. It came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said unto her, This is thy kindness which thou shalt show unto me at every place whither we shall come. Say of me, he is my brother. He was afraid that uh, because she was a beautiful woman, if she was his wife, They would kill him and take his wife. And that raises another question that uh, we have problems with. She was 89 years old at this point. And men are fighting over her to be their wife. I used to bother me. And... uh, And, and I realize that uh, 
God, by his providence, dealt uniquely with Abraham and, and uh, Sarah, as he did with Moses and some others, and let them live a long time. She lived to be 120. And But in my mind, I thought of her as aging at the normal rate and then just staying old a long time. But apparently that's not the way it worked. God slowed down in the case of Abraham and Sarah and Moses the aging process so that uh, Abraham, I mean Moses, when he was 120 years old, it says that his natural force was not abated and his eye was not dimmed. He was still youthful, vigorous. And uh, so, in effect, her real age physically was about half of this 89, which was, you know, she's a woman about 50 years old, and we all know that a 50-year-old woman can be very attractive. How old is my wife, George? Let's see. <laughs> and uh, so uh, we can understand. Well, we'll move on. In the, uh, uh, we have uh, God's intervening at this point in verse 3. God said, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man. For the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister? And she, she even said herself, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hand have I done this. And God said unto him in a dream, Yeah, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. I read that and I thought, hmm, I wonder what he's withheld me from. I wasn't even aware that he was withholding me from, keeping me from sinning against him in a given situation. Now therefore restore the man, his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. If thou restore her... Not know that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. God stands by Abraham, his prophet, his servant, even though he lies and compromises in this situation. Abimelech calls his servants in, tells them this. Then he calls Abraham and confronts him. Verse 9. Abimelech called Abraham and said, What hast thou done unto us? What have I offended thee, that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. Here's the pagan confronting God's servant about his behavior. It's bad when the servants of God's behavior falls below this standard accepted even among pagans. Abimelech said to Abraham, What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? What has made you do this? And Abraham said, Because I thought... Surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. Yet indeed she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. It came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said unto her, This is the kindness that thou shalt show unto me, that every place whither we shall come, say of me, He is my brother. Well, Pretty lame excuse that Abraham makes there for his sin, which brought great troubles on the house 
of Abimelech. We read further on in verse 18, The Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abraham and Sarah had agreed ahead of time to compromise, to sin, whenever they got into a situation like that. You know, number a uh, number of us made decisions a while back uh, that we would do a certain thing in a certain situation. And even after becoming Christians, we don't deal with that sometimes. We continue that pattern of behavior. And what we need to do is to think ahead. What situations may face me? What temptation may come to me in my position as a doctor, as a businessman, as a housewife, as a student? What temptations are going to face me at college? What temptations are going to face me if I join that fraternity? Whatever it may be. And make a decision ahead of time. If that happens, I'm going to obey God, period. If you're a doctor an anesthesiologist, and you're called in, in the case of an abortion, what are you going to do? The time to make that decision is now. If you're a salesman, and by misrepresenting your product, you can sell it over your competition, what are you going to do? Make that decision now. Uh, If you're a student, and you're invited to go to a particular party, a type of party. What are you going to do? If you are a girl and you are going to be out on a date, what are you going to do in a particular situation? Make that decision now. I received a letter from a lady who used to be a member of our congregation, moved away. She said, my husband and I were back in your church a while back for a visit. And you preached on adultery that Sunday. And you urged us to make a prior decision what we would do if faced with a temptation to adultery. And to make the decision now that we would not commit adultery. And I thought, as I was there, I'll never face that temptation. I love my husband. We are surrounded with other couples who are Christians. And uh, they love their husbands and wives. And I won't face that kind of temptation. But because you urged us to make that decision, I decided to go ahead and make it. Then I completely forgot about the decision. Then due to a set of circumstances totally beyond my control, I was put in a very vulnerable situation with an extremely compassionate Christian man who gave me a lot of emotional support. Never have I fought such an intense spiritual battle. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, and Dobson's book, Straight Talk to Men and Their Wives, proved so helpful in fighting the temptation. I praise the Lord for his faithfulness to me during this trial and for the decision I made several years ago. Please continue to preach that sermon. Temptations come when you least expect it. Make a prior decision, what you're going to do. Or if you've got a kind of compromise that Abraham already had, deal with it, bring it out into the open, repent of it. Well, there's, the wife has returned uh, to Abraham, and uh, the matter is settled. And then we have the birth of Isaac. 
this promised thing. Chapter 21, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac, laughter. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac. We'd say baptized him when he was eight days old, and God, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old, and his son Isaac was born, when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, and so that all that hear will laugh with me, rejoice with me. She said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah would have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. Well, here's this promised thing and the great joy that it brings. And then you have a tragedy. The casting out of Hagar and her son, Ishmael. You remember earlier when Sarah's barren, and although God has promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, that Sarah goes in after a while, years and years have gone by since the promise, and she says, Abraham, go in to Hagar, my handmaiden. Maybe God will give you a child by her. So she gives her handmaiden to Abraham. He goes into her. She conceives. And when she does, she begins to despise Sarah, look down on her. And Sarah is very upset and, and deals harshly with her. And Hagar flees. But God tells Hagar to go back. And she goes back and lives there. But now it's 13 years later. And now there's the baby Isaac. And how will Ishmael react to Isaac? In verse 8, the child grew, Isaac grew, and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking Isaac, persecuting Isaac. The New Testament tells us, in interpreting this, that this was persecution. And she sees this, and she sees as it proceeds from profaneness, a rebellious spirit against God, that it would be an ongoing thing. And she's terribly upset. And uh, verse 10, Wherefore, she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. They've got to go, Abraham. Your son, Ishmael, and his mother, Hagar, they've got to leave. Go. Not going to have him here. Not going to have that boy persecuting my boy. Not going to have him an heir along with my boy. I've got to go. Well, that was very distressing to Abraham. The thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. What a domestic situation. Think of that. Mm. My goodness. Every morning, Sarah said, Abraham, have you, have you told her? Have you faced it? Will you do it today? Well, no breakfast. <laughs> you know, uh, I was in a home a year ago, Lou Wheeler, and there was a plaque in his home. I said, I've got to have a plaque like that. And so he gave me one a couple months ago. You know what that plaque says? It says, when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. 
Well, uh, interestingly, God ratifies Sarah's urging. In verse 12, And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight, because of the lad and because of the bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Abraham, I promise to be a God to you and to your seed after you. Well, that applies to Isaac. It doesn't apply to Ishmael. His seed I'm not going to be a God to. And it's appropriate that he depart. I will make of him a mighty nation. I'll look after him. But he won't be, they won't be my people. My people will be those who descend through Isaac. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. So Abraham calls Hagar in. He gives her all the provisions she can carry, food and water, and sends her and the son out into the desert. She goes along and she runs out of water. She throws her son, whom she's been half dragging, he's 13 years old, over under a bush. She goes some distance away so she won't have to watch him die. Suddenly God intervenes. In verse 17, God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of the Lord called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not. God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, hold him in thy hand, I will make of him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad. And he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer, and so on. That's an interesting story. I wonder if there's more to that story than meets the eye. Sometimes there is in these Old Testament stories, isn't it? Look at Galatians chapter 4 in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. The background, the Apostle Paul established this church in Galatia. He preached that Jesus Christ was God become man, that he died for our sins. He paid our fine in God's court. He rose literally from the dead, that he was alive. One day he would return, that all who came to him in true repentance and faith, really surrendering their will to him as their master and turning from sin by his power and trusting him to forgive as a gift based on his death, or trusting God to forgive through Christ, relying on that. Salvation by grace is a gift. That they would be forgiven. They would be adopted into God's family and so on. They had accepted this message. A church had been established. But after Paul left, some other men came who claimed to have been sent by the mother church in Jerusalem. These men are called Judaizers by church historians. And uh, they said Paul didn't quite have it right. If you really want to be saved, you really want to go to heaven, it's not enough that you trust in Christ. You've got to be, uh, you've got to have a pretty good record. And the combination of what Christ did and your good record is what will save you. You, you must keep the law Pretty good, 70%, something like that. As a good start on that, you need to be circumcised. Paul writes back, he says, 
in this Galatian letter, if you accept that teaching, that's a false gospel, Christ will profit you nothing. You won't be taking the grace way, you'll be taking the law way. And notice what he uses. He uses this whole story of Hagar being cast out with her son to illustrate the principles. In verse 21 of Galatians 4, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, you're going to trust to some degree in your law-keeping as far as making you acceptable to God. Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondmaid was born after the flesh, and he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? Which things God designed to have a deeper meaning? For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth the bondage, which is Hagar. This Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. What's he saying? Well, number one, he's saying that domestic situation, while it was all very true, represented dynamics between people, had a far deeper meaning. God was showing how salvation works. Hagar represents the covenant that God made at Mount Sinai when the nation of Israel went to Mount Sinai with Moses, God gave the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were never given to save us. God never intended man to get the idea you're saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. They were given to show us our sin. The more I understand the Ten Commandments, the more I understand I haven't kept them. And the more I understand I haven't kept them, the more I understand I'm ruined. I'm doomed. I, Frank Barker, am going to hell. See, if I really understand the Ten Commandments, as far as how I measure up, I don't measure up and I'm going to hell. Now, if I really understand that, what will I do? I look around and I'll say, is there some way of being forgiven for not having kept God's holy law. Amen. There is a way. God sent his son. Back then, that son was typified by a lamb that was given. And you would come to the lamb and you would confess your sin over the head of the lamb before the priest. And then the lamb's blood was shed. And that was symbolically presented to God. And you were told by God through the priest that you were forgiven. So the law made you flee to the Lamb. It was never given as a way of salvation, but a way of convicting us of our sin, showing us our need of a Savior. But what happened? Hagar represents the law there. <clears throat> Hagar was given to be a handmaiden to Sarah. Sarah represents the covenant of grace, God's way of salvation by grace. What happened to Hagar? Instead of being a handmaiden, she was elevated out of her proper position. 
she was used to beget children. And when she begat children, she begat children in bondage who would be cast out. The law was given to be a handmaiden to the covenant of grace, to render it effective by convicting us of our sin, show us our need of a Savior through grace as a gift. What happened? What did the Jews do with the law? The Jews elevated the law out of its proper position, used it as a way of salvation begetting children. And when they used it as a way of salvation, it begat children in bondage who ultimately would be cast out. That's the Jerusalem which now is. That's Judaism. As a way of salvation, it won't get you to heaven. You can't get to heaven on how well you've kept God's law. You haven't kept it. And you mustn't trust in that at all. You must trust in Christ alone. The Jerusalem which is above, that's heaven. And when we trust in Christ, we're citizens of that city. Well, we see the concept there. Notice his application of it in verse 28. Now we are, we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Number one, there's a parallel in position. We're either Isaac or we're Ishmael. If we're trusting it all in our law keeping, if you're trusting that uh, I'm going to heaven because I trust in Jesus and I've been fairly good or and I've been baptized, you mustn't trust in anything except Christ alone. Then you're Isaac. Otherwise, you're Ishmael. Which are you? The parallel in position. We, brethren, he says, are as Isaac. The parallel in persecution. As Ishmael persecuted Isaac, he says, as him that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. The Christian can expect persecution from the non-Christian. I was reading about the foundation of the Salvation Army by General William Booth. When he began his mission work in East London in 1865, he met violent opposition that grew even more intense when in 1878 his Christian mission became the Salvation Army. One Salvation Army officer came into a meeting loaded down with dead cats and rats. He explained these had been thrown at him, that he caught and held the dead animals because if he dropped them, the crowd would merely pick them up and throw them at him again. Pots of human urine were often dumped on the street preachers. Beatings were not uncommon. In 1889, at least 669 Salvation Army members were assaulted. Some were killed. Many were maimed. Even children were not immune. Hoodlums threw lime in the eyes of a child of a Salvation Army member. The newspapers ridiculed Booth. Punch, the British magazine, uh, referred to him as Field Marshal Von Booth. Soon a bunch of thugs and ruffians organized themselves into the Skeleton Army and devoted themselves to disrupting the meetings of the Salvation Army. They often attacked Salvation Army members as they paraded through the streets or held open-air meetings. They frequently stormed Salvation Army meeting halls by the hundreds and broke out the window panes, wrecked the insides of buildings, and so on. One girl was kicked deliberately in the womb and left for dead, and she did die. Persecution, it's always been part of 
what Christ said we could expect, that the world hates you. You know that it hated me before it hated you because you're not of the world. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hated you. Uh, the servant's not above his master. That persecution of Isaac by Ishmael, typifying that. And in uh, verse 30, nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Parallel in position, where Ishmael or Isaac, parallel in persecution, Ishmael persecutes Isaac, parallel in permanence, God will persecute the Ishmaels. They will ultimately be cast out. Well, what an amazing history here. Isn't it amazing how God takes this human dynamic and this human interaction, and yet it's all part of his design and his plan, the sovereignty of God, the control of events, and yet in such a way that people are acting freely. Isn't that amazing? The way he weaves in the picture of salvation to so much of Scripture. Amazing. Which are you? Were you the Ishmael or were you Isaac? Has a supernatural birth taken place in your life so that you're different than you used to be and different from other people? Is the evidence of a changed life, fruit of the Spirit in your life? Do you look to God to forgive you as a free gift through Christ? Or do you think that you'll go to heaven because you have been fairly good? Do you trust in Christ alone to save you, a rotten sinner? Christianity is for those who acknowledge that they're undone. If you are a Christian, have you got some area of your life that you've made a compromise with sin and you're prepared when you're in that kind of a situation to lie or to cheat or to do whatever you have to do to save your own hide like Abraham was doing? Make a prior decision not to do that in a given situation. Repent. Plan ahead how you'll stand for Christ. If you're Ishmael, you realize that you've never really surrendered your will to Christ or put your trust in him alone. Jesus said that anyone who would come to him he would in no wise cast out. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, are you Ishmael or Isaac? What are you trusting in? Have you had a supernatural birth? If you are Isaac, is there an area of compromise? Is there a prior decision you need to make about sin? Is there something you need to turn from that you've been engaging in? Deal with that before the Lord. If you're Ishmael, Christ said, come to me and I will in no wise cast you out. Come to him now. Pray like this in your heart. Lord Jesus, thank you for your death for me. Lord, I come to you and you say you won't cast me out. I surrender my will and trust you as my Savior. Come into my life. Amen.